All right, well, good morning once again. It's so good to see all of you. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Always grateful when we can come together and worship together. Well, we are in a week two of our Christmas series called Word Made Flesh. And we're spending all three to four weeks focusing on one passage, John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, now, if you were here with us last week, uh, we unpacked this idea of uh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus being known as, as the Word, and this concept, the notion of the Word. Uh, John introduces this to us in the beginning of his Gospel, in verse 1 to 4, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And Pastor Brandon explained to us that before the very first Christmas, before Jesus was born, placed in a manger, before angels appeared and shepherds rejoiced and wise men brought gifts, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, existed eternally as the Word as the eternal Son of God, that the Word is the creator, sustainer of all existence. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. And he was and is the true source of life and light. And then picking up in verse 14, and we're just going to focus on the first part of that uh, this morning, the first sentence, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, there's a lot of theology that can be unpacked just from this one sentence. And even the very first phrase, the word became flesh. Theology that's been debated and argued over for thousands of years and, and even today. And that's why we don't want to lose sight of the, the main point by getting caught up in all the various nuances. It is important that we identify some core truths that are foundational to our faith that John is communicating. And what John is making clear from the very beginning here in his gospel is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That when he says that the word became flesh, he's saying that the second person of the Trinity became a, a human being. And this is what's known as the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation literally meaning in fleshing. God becoming a man, taking on flesh and blood. So when John says the word became flesh, what he intends for us, he intends for us to believe that everything he had just said about the word a few verses back, the word being with God, the word being God, the word being the creator, sustainer, light, and life, that all those things still hold true even after the word becomes flesh. That nowhere does he suggest or imply or even hint that somehow the word stops being God when he takes on flesh. Jesus is always fully God, fully deity, divinity. And we see this throughout scripture. Right, God the Father declares that Jesus is God. Jesus himself declares he's God. He's unapologetic for receiving praise or worship. 
He picked nicknames for himself like Son of Man, Son of God, Alpha and Omega that were reserved for God. He demonstrated divine attributes, performed miracles. He claimed to be morally perfect, without sin in word and deed, thought and motive. He claimed to have authority to raise the dead, to determine our eternal destiny, to forgive sin, to grant eternal life. Jesus was never shy. He was never timid. He never tiptoed around the reality that he was fully God. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus, in humility, willingly chose to set aside certain attributes to limit himself from accessing certain abilities, all while still remaining fully God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7 says, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Right? Being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. So still possessing the nature of divinity, he emptied himself, relinquished certain rights, certain abilities. Now how this all works itself out metaphysically is another topic that's greatly debated, but the essential truth of our faith is that Jesus was 100% fully God. Always has been, always will be. And that he's also fully human. And this is another core truth that we see in scripture. For instance, Jesus is born of a woman. He's given a human name, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He had brothers and sisters. He was racially, ethnically Jewish. He grew, matured, developed physically, mentally, relationally. He studied, learned. He got thirsty and hungry. He needed to eat and drink. He got tired and fatigued. He needed to rest, sleep, unwind, get away. He worked as a carpenter, craftsman. He had friends, went to parties, loved his mom, felt the need to pray, chose to worship, obeyed God the Father. He was emotional and passionate, bold and courageous, caring and protective. But he also experienced struggles and hardships. One could argue that Jesus had an extremely difficult life most likely lost his father at an early age in life, tempted by the devil himself, struggled financially, grew up poor, taken advantage of, got ripped off, struggled to pay taxes, at times was even homeless. At one point, his family thought he was crazy. People talked behind his back. He was oftentimes the, the center of vicious gossip and rumors. He was harassed, threatened, in danger, his friends let him down, turned their backs on him, rejected him, abandoned him. He didn't get everything he prayed for. He experienced deep sadness, sorrow, anguish, exhaustion, loneliness. He was taunted, mocked, spit on, beaten, tortured, felt excruciating pain, suffocated, and even died. In terms of what it means to be human, 
Jesus was just like us, except he was without sin. And thus Jesus, we see in Scripture, is 100% fully God, 100% fully human. Now, I'm not a math major, but I know that adds up to 200. And this is what's known as the hypostatic union in theological terms. It's Jesus as one person who has two natures, humanity and deity. Now, as I said earlier, there is a whole lot of theology that can be unpacked from this. A lot more that can be discovered, discussed, debated, and, and thus if you have more questions, if you want more resources, if you want to dive in deeper and wrestle with these things, then feel free to contact any one of us on staff. You can reach us at B-R-A-N-D-O-N <laughs> at CerritosBaptist.org, and one of us would be happy to get back to you. So just want to make that open to everyone online as well. <laughs> the Word became flesh and made his dwelling upon us. Now this word that's translated as dwelling, it literally means to pitch a tent. That the word became flesh, and he pitched a tent among us. Now for the first century audience, whether Jewish or God-fearing Gentile, what would have immediately come to mind was the tabernacle in Israel's early days. And the tabernacle was, in essence, a portable tent in which God would meet with his people. It was a physical, tangible structure where God would dwell and live and travel with Israel, with his people. In the original tabernacle, which is also known as the tent of meeting, it's where God would speak to Moses. And I love this description that we get in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. It says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. The Lord would speak face to face as one speaks to a friend. You see, what John is communicating is that in the same way that God dwelled amongst Israel in the tabernacle, in the same way that he would communicate with Moses and the high priest face-to-face -face as a friend, he has now come to dwell among us, to speak to us in the person of Jesus. You see, what John is highlighting, and what I want every single one of us to take away this morning, what John is highlighting is God's undeniable and his relentless desire to be with us. To live and dwell among us. To have a loving and intimate relationship with each and every one of us. You see, our God is not a God who just sits in heaven on a throne waiting for us to find him. He's a God who literally steps off his throne and comes to us. Uh, when my uh, daughters were younger, uh, we had the, the blessing, the, the good fortune to be able to, to go on a handful of cruises uh, with our, our family uh, because of Amber's late grandma who would take the whole family on these family vacations. 
And the very first cruise that we got to go on, um, well, at least I got to go on, or we got to go on as a family, uh, Carly was about a little over a year, and we had just found out that Amber was pregnant with Katie. So about our third cruise, when Katie was about four or five years old, I remember her just being really frustrated and saying, it's, it's not fair. No matter how many cruises we go on, Carly will always have one more cruise. It's not fair. And we would kind of jokingly you know, remind Katie that technically that wasn't true. That technically she had gone on the same number of cruises, but she was just in you know, Amber's tummy. She'd be like, it's not the same, it's not the same. I, it's, I, I wasn't there, I didn't get to see it, feel it, experience it. You know, when I was at Talbot Theological Seminary, which is on Biola University's campus, uh, one day I was in class uh, during the afternoon, and the king of Swaziland came to visit the campus because he had a daughter who was attending at that time. And we were told that the king of Swaziland was coming, and all of a sudden this huge motorcade pulls up, police, security, everywhere. And, uh, and it was exciting. It was definitely fascinating. I had never seen a, a king you know, in, in person. And it was cool to, to, on one hand, you know, just think like, wow, the king of Swaziland came to, to visit us. But on the other hand, we knew that he didn't actually come to, to visit us. We weren't even allowed to leave the classroom. We were told we had to stay inside until he made his way into the building. I think for, for some of us, when we think about the, the, the Christmas story, Jesus coming to us 2,000 some years ago, on one hand, it's exciting. On one hand, we're obviously moved and grateful. I mean, it's, it's why we're here. On the other hand, there may be a sense of, well, it's not like we were, were there. And if we weren't really there, then did he really come for, for me? Does he want a, a deep, genuine, personal, intimate relationship with, with me? And thus it's important for us to, to, to remember, to, to recognize that Jesus' pursuit of us, it didn't end with Christmas. I mean, yeah, it didn't end with Christmas. Eventually there would be a Good Friday. Eventually there would be an and Easter, that Jesus would make it possible for us to have a relationship with him through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, reconciling us with the Father, removing the stain of sin that separated us. Eventually, Jesus would ascend into heaven. He would send us the Holy Spirit to not only dwell among us, but to live within each and every one of us. John chapter 14, 16 to 19, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me to the praise of his glory. Oh my gosh, I jumped verses. <laughs> I don't know where I left off. <laughs> That's crazy. All right, so you read John 14, 16 to 19. Remember what it said, spirit lives with you, in you. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, 13 to 14, it says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right, so what we're told is when we place our trust in Jesus, when we receive this gift of salvation, our sins are forgiven, we're made holy in the sight of God, we're adopted as a son, as a daughter, and we're given the Holy Spirit to live within us. And it's through the Spirit that we have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, that we can speak to him and hear from him, that we can pray to him, worship him. We can bring him our struggles, our pain, our hurt. We can experience his peace, receive his comfort, come to know his power and his strength. You see, this is how much God desires a relationship with you. The great lengths he has gone to be with you, to live within us. And there's more. See, Jesus didn't just come to earth 2,000 some years ago, clock in, put in a, a hard 33 years of, of work, go to the cross, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and then just kind of delegate it all to the, the Holy Spirit clocking out and then waiting for us, relaxing until we all show up heaven one day. What the Bible tells us is that even now, Jesus is still working. Even now, Jesus is still serving. Even now, Jesus is still interceding on our behalf so that we can be closer to him. In the Old Testament, the role of the, the high priest was in essence to be a mediator between God and God's people. As the high priest, he would listen to the, the needs and the requests of the people. He would consider their hopes and dreams, their fears, their worries, their burdens, and he would bring them before God. And then he would hear from God and he would go back and share it with the people. When it came to sin, he would listen to their confessions. He would consider their wrongdoings. He would then offer sacrifices to God, asking for forgiveness, and then he would receive from God and then pronounce God's blessing and God's forgiveness and mercy upon the people. And what the New Testament, specifically the book of Hebrews, tells us is that Jesus is the ultimate and perfect high priest. That his sacrifice, which was his flesh and his blood, was the ultimate sacrifice that dealt with sin once and for all. But because he is a high priest that is still alive, he is a priest that is still serving us 
and interceding for us on our behalf. That he is a God who loves us, cares for us, deeply concerned, attentive for our well-being. Look at Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. It says, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And what this means is that even at this moment, as Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is interceding on our behalf. That he sees our struggles. He sees our hurts our weaknesses, our brokenness, our flaws, our sins, our pain, our frustration, confusion, uncertainty, our fear, our worry. And he's bringing it to the Father, asking the Father to do what is good, what is perfect, what is true. See, 700 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah would prophesy regarding God's blessing that would one day come upon his people. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And this name Emmanuel means God with and what we've seen so far is the great length that God has gone to be with us. To not just dwell among us in the person of Jesus, but to reconcile us so that the Holy Spirit could come and live within each and every one of us. Jesus interceding on our behalf. Because Jesus is fully human, he knows what we're going through. He understands, sympathizes, empathizes. Because Jesus is fully God, he has the knowledge and the ability to help us, to do what is truly best for us. And thus, as we celebrate this, this Christmas season, we can celebrate with a sense of awe and a sense of, of wonder that God would come to be with us. We can enjoy the lights and the music and all the festivities with a sense of gratitude, a sense of praise, and a sense of worship because of who our God is, because of what he has done, and because of what he is, is doing. At the same time, to celebrate Christmas does not mean that we have to hide our struggles. It does not mean we have to pretend that everything is fine, everything is good. It does not mean we have to minimize the, the pain, frustration, the hurt, the confusion that we, we may be experiencing. despite the Christmas movies that we'll be watching and all the happy endings that we'll hear, 
And most of us know that that life doesn't work that way. The same challenges that we have going into this season are going to be waiting for us when we come out of this season. And thus, for us who are struggling, for us whose lives are hard right now, God with us means that we can bring those struggles to him. We can entrust those to him knowing that he already, he knows. He understands. And he is already at work interceding on our behalf. Regardless of of what we're feeling, regardless of our attitude, whether we're full of hope and confidence or whether we're discouraged and on the brink of despair, there is never any judgment from God. No condemnation, no frustration, anger, impatience, only grace and mercy. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, this past week, uh, before our staff meeting, a few of us were sitting around the table and somehow we got on the topic of talking about how, you know, our kids, especially when they're younger, how... Uh, they would get scared uh, about some of the, the most random things. Sometimes we wouldn't even know what they were scared about. Sometimes their fears would be you know, real things, and sometimes it would be completely irrational and illogical. Right? And as, as a parent, what you know, we all agreed upon was that you know, no matter how much we tried to explain to them that they didn't need to be afraid, that certain things didn't exist, that it would never happen, that they could feel safe and confident, assured, there were a lot of times where the only thing that would comfort them was not our words, was not our logic, but our, our presence. To just be with us. And it brought to mind just the, the countless hours and nights that Amber and I, you know, would just sit beside them in the middle of the night, sometimes just on the floor, staring at the ceiling, or just, you know, trying to squeeze in in their bed. Nights where we just gave up and brought them to ours. In the same way, for some of us, life is so challenging right now that there may not be words that can soothe the pain. There may not be words that can provide comfort and healing for those wounds. There may not be words that can make you feel better 
than what you feel right now. And a lot of times what we need, the only thing that can help is God's presence. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to to be with us, to make it possible, to provide a way where he can not only live among us, but he can dwell within us so that we can know him, so that we can experience him, so that at times we can just sit and be with him. So as we close our time here this morning, as we move back into a time of praise and worship and just reflecting upon who God is, reflecting on his heart for us, reflecting on what he's done, I want to give permission for for some of us to just sit in his presence. To know that the word made flesh, that God with us is here with you now. That he's for you. That he loves you. That he knows you. He understands. And he will always be with us. Let me pray for us.